I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. morning you're listening to get the funk out i'm janine and this is kuci 88.9 fm in irvine happy president's day everyone you know uh i thought before we kick off the show uh with my first guest kevin hazard who's standing by i just want to point out um you know this holiday is actually more than just an excuse to skip work it's an observance honoring all 44 presidents of the united states it's actually pinned to the birthdays of two of the greats george washington and abe lincoln and this actually first began in 1800. I was checking out some facts uh, online, Huffington Post and Mashable and things like that. And what else? I don't want to go into too much. I might just post this and put this on my blog, which is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. I'm trying to find some really good ones. Maybe we'll post them a little later on because I do want to bring Kevin on. Uh, but there's lots of great facts about the different presidents, so maybe I'll put that on my blog later on. All right, so let me tell you about the first guest I have. Kevin Hazard worked as a paramedic from 2004 to 2013, primarily at Grady Hospital in Atlanta. His freelance journalism has appeared in Atlanta magazine, Atlanta magazine, Marietta Daily Journal, Creative Loafing, and Paste. He's the author of a novel, Sleeping Dogs and a Thousand Naked Strangers. He and his family live in Hermosa Beach, California. And I actually had a chance to listen to an interview uh, he did with NPR, and I put the link on my blog as well, getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. So it's my pleasure to welcome to this week's show, Kevin Hazard. Hi, Kevin. Hi. How are you? Doing good. How about yourself? Good. Thanks for calling in. I know it's a holiday, so I appreciate you taking the time. And... Um, your book is really, it really is a wild ride. <laughs> how, did you, <laughs> how did you become a paramedic? Um, yeah, uh, the short answer is almost by accident. Um, there were a couple events that sort of happened, uh, you know, in my life that led me to it. One was having witnessed an accident in college, and I panicked. And so the result of that was, you know, me always wondering, you know, man, am I just that guy who panics when something goes wrong? Okay. And the other was 9-11. A lot of my friends were in the military. I'd gone to college at the Citadel. And as they were heading off to Iraq and Afghanistan, it occurred to me that you know, they, were, you know, they were suddenly part of something much larger than themselves. And you know, I was a reporter covering these city council meetings, mm-hmm. feeling rather unfulfilled. Uh, you know, and I just watched what they were doing, and I thought, you know, where's, where's, you know, where's something that I can do? And yes. uh, after I covered this tunnel collapse and interviewed the firefighters and the paramedics that were involved in that, I realized that there was something right here at home that I could do to both answer the question of, am I just that guy who panics when things go wrong, and also to be uh, part of something larger than myself. Sure. Now, was there a lot of training to become a paramedic? Well, yeah, there are two steps. The first is EMT, which, um, you know, is somewhat cursory. You know, it's probably somewhere between six to eight months of night school, 
and that's kind of a crash course in anatomy and physiology and you know, all the horrible ways that things can sure. uh, uh, happen to you. And then paramedic is about another, you know, 16 months or so of training after you've done that. What was it like when you first got behind the wheel? <laughs> you know, an ambulance is a really big thing. And uh, people have a tendency to panic when they see lights and sirens coming behind them, or they just ignore you. I, I find it interesting. There, there's almost no happy medium. They ignore um, you? I can't even believe that. <laughs> it's, it's shocking how many people, you know, will sort of give you the finger as you're trying to get them out of your way Unbelievable. Uh, to go to an emergency um, yeah, you know, the, it's, it's stressful to drive an ambulance through a city because you're trying desperately not to cause another emergency, and yet, you know, there's a clock ticking in terms of how, uh, you know, how quickly you need to arrive at somebody's house. And it, it's not fun. To, in my opinion, I never enjoyed driving an ambulance. So your early days when you first started out, it must have been really hairy. I mean, I was reading some, something, this interview with, you did with um, Terry Gross from NPR, Fresh Air, and I love the description because she was asking you, you know, what was it like? And you were talking about how you're racing down the street and somebody was, um, you had a partner next to you and they're yelling, turn your lights on, flip over, cross the double little line. We were like, what? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, you're, you're already stressed out because, you know, you're on your way to someone who's you know, having a heart attack or has been shot. So in the beginning, yeah. those kind of things are, you know, they, they really get your pulse going. So you're already under this high level of stress. And then on top of it, you are trying to speed through the streets in this thing with a screaming siren. And the siren, of course, bleeds into the, the cab of the ambulance. So it's really loud. And it's, it's like trying to complicate or trying to concentrate on a difficult task with somebody yelling in your ear. And so you know, your stress level's through the roof, and you're brand new, so you're just thinking, please, God, don't let me be the person who's going to screw up sure. and make this big mistake that everybody's going to remember. And then you're driving fast, and mm -hmm. you're, you know, you're cutting into oncoming traffic, and you're oh blowing through red lights, all while trying not to kill somebody. Oh, my God. It sounds like a movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and so how long did you do this for? I was in it for about 10 years, um, got in in 03 and got out right at the start of 2013. Were there some things that, you know, will, I'm sure there are some things that will always stay with you. I mean, you had to deliver babies and do all kinds of things. What were some of the things that were incredible? You know, I think the things that stick with you, it's so, it's so funny how common, uh, you know, all aspects of life are. But the things that stick with me the most are, you know, those moments where I made some sort of mistake. Mm -hmm. you know, that's you. you, it, you know, there are probably four or five faces. I mean, I saw thousands of patients. There are probably four or five faces, you know, who will never, you know, I will never erase them from memory. They're, you know, that, that sort of desperate look they gave to me shortly before they died. And you know, oh. those are the ones that you sit around at night and you think, you know, had I done something a little bit differently, maybe we could have, you know, maybe we could have changed the outcome. Sure. Uh, the reality is sometimes you're perfect and uh, your patient still dies. So you can't, you, you can't blame yourself too much when, you know, things don't go right, but, right. you know, you do. That's just, uh, that's, that's natural. So that's a big part of it, you know, and some of it, honestly, is a lot of it is the fun. Um, you know, there's a really there's a incredibly strong bond that forms between partners and, you know, because for the 40 minutes it takes to run this call, that person sitting next to you is the only thing you have in the whole world. Right. And if you get along and you guys are, you know, you're clicking, mm -hmm. 
it can be just this incredible experience. So I will always remember sitting across from someone who either just was really funny and made me laugh. I mean, I had one partner who used to take these crazy bets. And, you know, he bet me one time that he could eat a bottle of mustard in five minutes. <laughs> and he, so we're on the ambulance, and he starts eating this mustard, which, of course, he can't do. He gets a no. third of the way into it and has to stop. And now he's on the side of the road, and he's literally he's throwing up on the side of the street because he's had this yeah. mustard. And our radio goes off, and we have a call. And he's got to find a way to get, to get it back together and get on the ambulance. And he's green the whole time oh we're running this God. call. I mean, the it was lunatic. Just, but it was, yeah, it was hilarious <laughs> because he, you know, he did it to himself. So a lot of it would yeah. be the, you know, those great memories. And then, of course, you, you'll never forget, um, you know, the really big moments, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, there was a, a massive shooting in downtown Atlanta that I was a part of and, made national news it was in the courthouse and um you know some of the some of the really big wrecks that that you get called out to or um you know these these big moments that that you're a part of and you know it's uh you, you nobody wishes anyone harm but you know you get into this because you want to be the person that people look to in these desperate moments and you know to have experienced them and 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 performed well and 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 done you know some small measure of, of service to these people in their moment of need is, is, is a great feeling and it's something that you never you never forget. Was this something that you felt like was your calling once you got behind the wheel? I mean, was it something you always wanted to do? I know you talked about, you know, helping people, but when you were younger. You know, I, there was always a part of me that was like that, mm -hmm. um, that enjoyed helping people going out of my way, but I don't know that it was ever conscious. I don't think ever realize that I did it you know I was you know I, I was the sort of person that in a grocery store someone drops a five dollar bill I pick it up and you know hey hey you dropped you drop this five yes. um you know so but I, you know and it, it never occurred to me that hey you're, you're the sort of person who you know feels good about doing the right thing or likes to go out of your way for other people it wasn't you know I, I don't know that I, it was you know that self-conscious or yeah. self-aware uh, until I got into it and I realized that they are sort of two personalities, um, those who really enjoy helping other people, because you have to, you know, when you're crouching on an old lady's floor and she's been lying there for three days and, yeah. you know, she's, the floor is covered in urine and she's just wet and cold and oh. there's nothing exciting about that call. You just need to be the kind of person who is glad to be there to help somebody. And that, yeah. uh, this job brought that out of me. And, yeah. you know, I was kind of, I was surprised, frankly, that, you know my level of patience and uh, and and empathy. How how much of it that I had, I you know I don't think I ever realized it going in. I want to share a story with you. I grew up in Manhattan, and I remember being about ten years old, and all of a sudden there was a crowd around this young woman, and she had been riding a bicycle, and my mother and I were walking. We walked over, we ran over, and the kickstand had gone into her leg. It was horrific. And my mother seemed to be the only one who could have this calm. It, it was so much chaos. So she's telling me, run across the street. You see that pharmacy? Tell them what happened. You need this, this, that, and whatever. And it was like a no-brainer. I ran across, you know, major traffic, just putting my hands up to get across the street, grabbing stuff. And I got to say, to this day, I've had to face other situations to help people. My roommate in college cut her... Um, the base of her hand, uh, really much, pretty much near her, the veins of her wrist. 
everybody was in panic mode and I had this sense of calm. So I think sometimes, you know, you have these things happen to you and you just shift into, okay, and you start kind of telling people what to do and how to deal with it calmly. So I think that's just, I just wanted to share that with you. Yeah, no, and I, you know, I think a lot of people have that. People would say to me all the time, oh, it must take a really special person to do this job. And, you know, to a degree, I, I think that's true, but I don't think it's quite so special as somebody would realize. You know, I think, like you, you've, been, you've had a couple of these moments that brought that out in you, and I think right. an awful lot of us have that ability. And it's, I think it comes back to there's got to be a little part of you that enjoys that chaos, that, that has to, you know, when you're in those wild moments, there has to be some part of you that, that is satisfied to be there because that's what kind of brings you that, that calm is, you know, that, that there's just a part of you that, that is meant to be, you know, sure. thrust into chaos. And, and I think a lot more of us have that than, than people realize. Right, right. Well, it's interesting. You kind of shift into this um, uh, leadership role, you know, and you, and then I remember afterwards being really upset, you know, after, once the paramedics showed up, but, but just being so strong and, you know, knowing what to do. And which is important. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting feeling um, to be in a midst of, and it's weird when it's all over with. Right. You know, even on an ambulance, that's you know that's our whole reason for being. You show up in the morning, you know, you get dressed, you take a shower, you pack your lunch, you head to work. You do all that with the expe- expectation of, hey, someone's going to get hit by a car or right. you know choke on a French fry or whatever, and I'll be there. Yes. And so, even with all that expectation and training and, and being you know properly equipped to handle it, there's still this you know, this adrenaline dump that happens. And then it, all of a sudden it's over. The patient has moved on and the call is done and, and you and your partner are sitting somewhere quietly, you know, in an ambulance staring at a windshield waiting for the next one. It's a, it's a really strange emotional roller coaster that you go through. Uh, and it, it, but, yeah, when it's over with, it's, it's a strange feeling, you know. And it's not until they're out of your hands that you even have a moment to realize, God, do you realize what we just did? You sure. know, we right. <laughs> can't believe we just saw that. Right. It's not until it's over that you're, you know, the details catch back up with you. When you first did started doing this job, were you really drained after the first couple of, you know, experiences? Or were you very strong? I was, yeah, I, the opposite of drained. It, it was this, uh, in the beginning, I probably could have stayed at work without ever leaving. And I think a lot of people are like that. You, wow. It, yeah. it's, it's almost, um, I think intoxicating is probably the right word, you know, the, I remember standing there just in a, in a convenience store in my uniform and you know, the, the sort of look what people would give you and hearing the radio chatter in your ear, and knowing, like, my God, whatever happens right now, I'm the one who's going to go out to it. And it was just a remarkable feeling to know that, that you're the one who's going to be called out to these things. And, you know, it was an incredible adventure, you know, especially in the beginning when it was so brand new. I mean, I, I, you know, I could have stayed at work forever initially. I can't even imagine. When did you decide to write this book? You know, it was after I was out. Um, several years in, a friend of mine finally turned to me and said, you know, this is 08, 09, kind of when blogs are really big. And he said, why don't you just start writing these stories down? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, a few people had encouraged me to do something. You know, someone's got to tell these stories. And so I started doing it. And, but that was it. That was my intention. That was as far as I planned to go with it. But the response was incredible, and, and so when I got out and had a chance to really take measure of, of what I'd done over the decade, I knew that you know, this was a story that needed to be told. I'd never heard it told, in my opinion, the way that 
EMS providers tell it to each other, and I just thought, all right, well, let me, let me sit down and take a crack at it. Right. You talk about respiratory calls. That's really, really common. Yeah. You know, I think every city has its own, uh, you know, its own, like, most common call. Uh, and then I certainly in, in Atlanta, and, I, it, you know, it's probably, I live in L.A. now, it's probably quite similar here, mm-hmm. somewhere between demographics and uh, the environment. You know, some, some areas just have a lot of respiratory issues, and, and Atlanta was just choked with them. And, you know, we ran tons of asthmatics, tons of, you know, emphysema and COPD and congestive heart failure. And those were, those were without a doubt, my favorite calls because you could walk in on, on an asthmatic who's having, you know, who's moments from death, oh. and you can see it in their face, and they know it, and they can't sit still, and they can't. I mean, they are panicked, and, I mean, it's essentially a person drowning. Right. And you are, you know, we're, we just happen to be perfectly equipped uh, to handle that emergency and bring them from near death all the way back to where they're calmly looking at you saying, are you sure I need to go to the hospital? And so that was always a really rewarding call when, you know, when you, when you could bring somebody all the way back around. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love those. You know what's really fascinating to me is when I read about how you would treat uh, overdoses of heroin, let's say. I mean... I didn't know there was anything that could reverse the, you know, effects of that. Can you talk about that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because that's become a big national debate is, you know, should, how, how available should this drug Narcan be? And essentially, when you have an overdose on heroin, for instance, any kind of opiate, but, you know, prescription painkillers are becoming very popular or have become very popular. They have a very particular central nervous system effect that suppresses the urge to breathe. And so people's hearts are still beating. They're still alive. They're just not breathing. And so they overdose, they go unconscious, and they stop breathing. And this drug, Narcan, um, reverses that central nervous system effect. So it's very dramatic. You'll have someone, and that's the only thing it does. It does nothing else. And so you, know, you will have someone who's unconscious in, in a bathroom or in their car mm-hmm. or behind a building or in their house, and uh, you find them, and they're, they're blue and Usually the people with them are, you know, very nervous because nobody wants to go to jail and they don't want to get the friend in trouble. So they're kind of trying to couch the details and you have to explain, hey, you know, we aren't the police. Right. We don't, you don't go to jail, but it's also not illegal to be under the influence. It's yeah. illegal to be in possession. So let's just, you know, what is going on? And then, right. you know, you give Narcan and almost instantly, I mean, it's like a, like a snap of the finger. You know, they open up and they take this big, deep breath and they start to pinkin up and then they're, you know, sort of, eyes wild from having essentially been dead mm-hmm. um, and and then that you know then that you need to start getting to the details of the story and of course they, you know you need to bring them to the hospital because the heroin lasts longer in their body than the Narcan does so they're headed right back to where they started from if they're not careful that is so scary this is, wow yeah and, and and so there are a lot of municipalities now who are giving it to the police and who are trying to give it out on the street and you know as a Sort of with the the clean needle program in the 80s and condoms and all these things, people, you know, there's a debate of, well, giving the antidote does that just encourage people to use it? And so, you know, that's why Narcan has become this this big flash button issue, much like many other things have been in the past. Because it's, it's it's a critical resource that can save a lot of lives. That's what it sounds like. That you know, you're you're coming in and you're saving them, but then it's not over yet. No, not at all. And of course, you know, you're you are dealing with someone oftentimes who has a, a drug addiction addiction issue. So now, the drug they're addicted to is out of their system, and so 
you know, you can send them into withdrawals and they can have seizures and dies. So you have to be very careful about how much you give to them. But you also need to continue to monitor them. They need to go to the hospital and oftentimes they don't want to because mm-hmm. they know that's going to mean questions and, and encouragement to enter into rehab. And, you know, people don't oftentimes they don't want to admit that they have a problem because that requires them then to start taking steps. To deal with um, it, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing. And, and, of course, they've got to go. And so, you know, you kind of, it's just one of those calls that, you know, tends to be a bit of an ordeal because, uh, because of all the baggage associated with it. So, Kevin, and by the way, if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Kevin Hazard, the author of A Thousand Naked Strangers, A Paramedic's Wild Ride to the Edge and Back. Kevin, when did you know it was time to retire from being a paramedic? You know, I had a lot of ups and downs. And people have said to me when I, in the beginning, you know, you're liable to love this and then get used to it and then burn out and then kind of be reborn again and then eventually burn out again. You know, it's just a bit of a cycle. And I noticed that. But I hit a point, and I'll, I'll never forget the particular moment that it, it struck me. There was a woman who was found in bed with her son-in-law. Her daughter walked in the house, and there's her husband and her mother in bed. She freaks out and grabs a bat. Husband jumps out the window, and she beats her mom unconscious with the bat. And we get there, and you know, there's this police helicopter that's swirling overhead looking for the, the woman. There are bystanders everywhere who are yelling and you know, kind of pushing up against the police tape. There are cops. There's firefighters. There's my partner and I. There's this really critical patient, blood spattered on the wall, and this baseball bat rolling around. And, and I, right in the middle of it, I just sort of yawned, and it was... It was just, I just felt very casual. What a reaction. I know. And it occurred to me that, wow, you, you know, this is exactly the call you got in this to run. And if this is just another day at work, then you really need to think long and hard about whether you still want to be here because you do need that hypervigilance. You need, you know, you don't, you don't want, you don't want someone to show up to your emergency running around and screaming and, you know, right. yelling for everybody to hurry, hurry, hurry. Cause it's, you know, medicine is, is a cerebral pursuit, but you do need people to be able to flip that switch and be very zeroed in on this emergency and what's happening. And when I was so passive about it, you know, just simply, you know, a tradesman doing his, doing what he's been trained to do, I I thought, you know, this is kind of, I've seen this in people before. I've seen people who, who nothing gets them going and they tend to be bad providers, and it's probably time for me to go. And so uh, I went home that next morning, and I said to my wife, I said, you know, we, I just laid it out. Yes. And to my surprise, she had noticed it already. And uh-huh. she said, yeah, you know, I, th- I think it's really time for you to go. And, and that was it. So what was next for you? Well, at that time, we were having children. Mm-hmm. So uh, my wife had just had our second child, and we were you know, wrestling with daycare and all these other things. And, uh, and so I said, well, let me stay home for a bit, and I'll keep an eye on the kids, and we'll, you know, we'll figure out where to go. And right about almost at the moment that we made this decision, she got an offer to take a job out here in L.A. Oh. And so we did. We came out, and then I started writing the book, and here we are. Let me ask you, did you find it was very cathartic to write this book? I mean, did you always plan on, you know, that you just want to tell these stories? Yeah, you know, I really didn't think it would be. Um, you know, I just thought, well, this is interesting. Why don't I write this? Uh, but putting my experience into, you know, into context for me and, you know, to, to chart 
where I was in the beginning. I was almost surprised when I went back and kind of revisited my thoughts and you know, tried to really hard to remember, well, what was it like when, in the beginning? And a lot of that was just listening to, it's funny, I, I kind of downloaded all this music from the various years that I had, that had been popular, that I liked, various years of my career and listened to it and was able to kind of recreate some of those feelings and was surprised almost by what I found about, you know, reminding myself of, of being scared in the beginning, you know, when I was in school and understanding, my God, this is going to be, like, these people's lives are going to be in my hand and how intimidating that was. And sure. then, you know, the feeling of excitement and, you know, almost the, uh, the cowboy feeling that you have when you're really, when you're a few years in and you're very good at your job and you're really excited and you know, hey, whatever happens, we can handle this. Right. Um, you know, and just re, you know, following that arc and that's, you know, realizing that there was an arc. I went from, you know, sort of wide-eyed, green, nervous guy to, in the end, you know, having become competent and ready, fully ready to leave and just, um, and then be able to process what, what the job meant and why was it that I did it for so long and, you know, what did it mean to me? And uh, it, it was a great experience writing. I'm very glad I did it. That's incredible. And congratulations. The uh, book was published by Simon & Schuster. If people do want to find out more about you, where can they find you? Um, well, I can, and I'm on, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all those things. I have a website, kevinhazard.com, and I'm floating out there in the, <laughs> in, in, the, in the virtual world. That's great. Well, Kevin, I want to thank you so much for calling in, and uh, I really enjoyed reading your book. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. That's great to hear. All right. Thanks for having me on. All right. Much. Have a wonderful day, and I uh, hope to meet you sometime now that you're in L.A. Yes, absolutely. We're Floating around and enjoying it. Sounds good. All right. Have a wonderful day. You do the same. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. That was Kevin Hazard, author of A Thousand Naked Strangers, A Paramedic's Wild Ride to the Edge and Back. If you would like to read more about him, I did put a link up on my blog, getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. I'm going to take a quick little break, and then we're going to be joined by Molly Gregory, and she has a very interesting uh, documentary she has put together. Uh, she's also an author, she's a screenwriter, and she put together this um, film, Stunt Women, The Untold Hollywood Story, and she's joining me around 9.30. So let's take a quick break, and then I'll bring Molly on. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Mm-hmm. 